Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got Bibles in the backs of the pews. You can turn to page 955. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, please take that Bible as a gift. All right, well, anyone else here have a fear of being unprepared? Have you ever been in a room full of people and your name is called and that's the moment you realized it's your turn to give the presentation and you have nothing? That feeling is horrible. I promise that's not the feeling that I'm having right now. <laughs> But I have nightmares about things like this, where I'm in front of people, looking out at them, looking down at notes, and they're just blank sheets of paper. I don't like being unprepared. In our text this morning, Peter is helping Christians to prepare for suffering so that when the moment comes, we are ready and not fearful. So let's turn to God's word this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we desire to hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would comfort us, that you would convict us, and that you would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are now in the fourth chapter of Peter's letter to these elect exiles in Asia Minor. And like I mentioned last week, from this point on, most of what we're going to be hearing from Peter is on suffering. Last week, we were encouraged to endure suffering in light of Christ's victory. And this morning, Peter's emphasis is a little different. He calls us to see that suffering is a part of our identity as Christians and that we must embrace suffering. 
As we identify with Christ and live for the will of God, we will be faced with many challenges and oppositions from the culture around us. Peter tells us that embracing suffering requires a change in our thinking and our behavior. He encourages us to have the same mindset that Jesus had when he suffered. So we are to embrace suffering for righteousness' sake. We are to do good. We are to resist sin and live for the will of God. And the main point of the sermon this morning is simply this. It is better to suffer for righteousness' sake than to sin. It is better to suffer for righteousness' sake than to sin. And I'll break these verses down into three parts. Verses 1 and 2, we will see how we should think during our suffering. How we should think during our suffering. In verses 3 and 4, we will see how we should behave during our suffering. How we should live. In verses 5 and 6, we will see the judgment after our suffering. So take a look at verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see how we should think during our suffering. Verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. A lot of what is called Christianity here in the West is very far from what we actually see described in the Bible. The influence of materialism, consumerism, prosperity have bled into the church and has made, made many forget the fact that the Bible describes the Christian life as hard with many obstacles and difficulties. And as we've studied 1 Peter, Peter has been reminding us again and again that suffering is the default of the Christian. If you are truly following Jesus, you are either currently experiencing suffering or it's on its way. It's just a matter of time. And so the options that we have are either to live a life of sinning, live a life of sin, Live, live the way that the world does or to live a life of suffering. Choose self or choose Christ. Those are the options. Look at verse 1. By using the word therefore, Peter is pointing back to what he said in verses 18 through 22, specifically that Jesus suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And he writes that Christ suffered in the flesh. And when Peter uses the word flesh here, he uses it in a different way than the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul uses the word flesh, he usually is referring to our old self, our old sin nature. But Peter is not saying that Jesus had a sin nature. When Peter writes that Christ suffered in the flesh. He is saying that Jesus suffered during his life here on earth. He suffered in his physical body. And his suffering was unique in the sense that he suffered and died for his people. He was mocked. 
He was beaten. He was betrayed and crucified. He died for those who believe in him. He suffered for us. And Jesus not only suffered, but was vindicated. We learned about this last week. His suffering led to victory, victory over sin, victory over death, and victory over evil. And that is the promise that we have. That yes, in this life, we will experience suffering. We will face various trials and temptations, but in the end, we will be vindicated. We will live forever with our God. The sufferings of Christ was the pathway to victory and vindication. And so as his followers, we should be ready to endure the suffering that is going to come. The suffering that Peter's readers were experiencing at the time of this letter was mild in comparison to what was coming. They experienced social hostility. They were humiliated in front of people. People threatened them. They lost status within society. But we know from history that there was a greater persecution. And people lost their lives in horrific ways just for following Jesus. Suffering comes in many different forms, and the Christian should be ready to suffer for righteousness' sake, no matter if that means you're going to be made fun of or if that means death. And as a side note, I, as your pastor, have been praying for you. Because I think it's been pretty easy to be a Christian in the world in which we live. Up until this point, our culture is changing drastically, and it looks like it's going to get harder for us. It's going to get harder for those who actually identify with Christ and who stand for what the scriptures teach. And my prayer is that you will take what God is teaching you in his word to heart. That you would not only hold on to words of comfort, but that you would take the words that are bringing conviction, the words that are challenging you, and that you would desire to see change in your life. Because we need to be ready for the hostility that will eventually come our way. And it's my desire that you would choose to suffer for Jesus rather than giving in to the demands of the culture, rather than giving in to the demands of sin. And I hope and pray that we will never have to experience the threat of death for what we believe. But I hope and pray that if it comes, we are ready to face it head on because we've prepared ourselves. Suffering is coming So how do we get ready? Well, Peter says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. This is the main command in this section, that we arm ourselves. The word used here is a military term. Like soldiers preparing for a battle, believers need to prepare themselves. And think of this, you only need to arm yourself when there's danger, when there's war. Peter is reminding his readers and he's reminding us that this is not a time of peace. 
We need to arm ourselves. Suffering is coming. Suffering is here. We have to be prepared in order to face it. If we wait, if we wait, the moment when the critical decision has to be made will be too late. We have to arm ourselves in preparation. And so what do we arm ourselves with? Peter says that we arm ourselves with the mindset of Jesus. Do you see that there in the text? He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What does Peter mean by this? Well, if we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, Peter writes, For to this you have been called. Peter's talking about suffering. You have been called to suffer while doing good. And so he says, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ is our example for what it looks like to suffer. And so how did Christ think and act during his time of suffering? Peter writes in verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In following Christ's example in suffering, we should be resisting sin. Jesus committed no sin. When suffering comes our way, there's this great temptation to give into our sinful desires because it minimizes our suffering. It brings temporary comfort. Christ committed no sin. In fact, his suffering was for the sins that we commit. When he saw suffering on the way, there was no deceit found in his mouth. He didn't fall into the temptation of saying, well, I'm just going to lie my way out of this so I don't have to suffer. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Peter continues in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus didn't return evil for evil. We have to have this mindset that when suffering comes, when people make fun of us, when they treat us differently, when they threaten us, we don't respond back with the same. Peter actually tells us in, in his letter to love them, to desire that God would bless them. So when suffering comes, we don't try to sin our way through it. When suffering comes, we don't seek a way out of it. When suffering comes, we don't threaten the people who are coming after us. But take a look at, at the end of verse 23. Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father. He followed the will of God and knew that God would make things right in the end. We don't have to take justice into our own hands. In the end, God will make things right. He will punish the wicked and reward those who suffered for righteousness' sake. This is what we arm ourselves with in a preparation for suffering. And to summarize all of that, we resist sin and we embrace God's will for our lives. We resist sin and we embrace God's will for our lives. Arm yourselves with this type of thinking. 
We are to make the decision that it is better to suffer for righteousness, righteousness' sake than to sin. And we see Peter continuing this thought. He says, for whoever, sorry, back in uh, chapter 4, verse, verses 1 and 2, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Whoever suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. Does it mean that suffering has some kind of magical quality that once I suffer, then boom, I become holy? Well, no, we know that's not true. You actually gave evidence of that, that not being true this week. Peter isn't saying that those who suffer attain some sort of sinless perfectionism. So what does this mean? Well, Peter is making the point that those who commit themselves to suffer, those who will willingly endure mockery for their faith, show that they have triumphed over sin, that they have broken with sin because they have ceased to participate in the sinful activities of unbelievers around them and have endured the suffering, endured their criticism. So those who suffer in the flesh choose to live a life of obedience, to live for the will of God, not for the will of man. We see here that the gospel message isn't for proclaim, just for proclaiming and believing, but it's also living. We need to live this out. This is why Christ died. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.24, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is the way in which we should live. Every day, dying to sin, resisting sin, ceasing from sin, putting sin to death, and living to righteousness. Living for the will of God and not for the passions of our flesh, which Peter tells us in his word that wage war against our souls. Good Christians, true Christians, make the will of God, not their lusts and desires, the rule of their lives. This is similar to what Paul wrote in Romans 6.11. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Since Christ chose to suffer for your sins, we must choose to suffer rather than sin. Since Christ chose to suffer for our sins, we must choose to suffer rather than sin. Suffering doesn't make us sinless, but because of the fact that Jesus has victory over sin, since Jesus died for our sins, since we are united with him in his death and resurrection, we have died to sin and now have the ability to say no to sin. So Peter encourages all believers to resolve to suffer rather than sin. In order to live for the will of God for the rest of their lives. God wants us to make a commitment to holiness, to make a commitment to sanctification so that we would no longer live a life driven by selfish, sinful human desire, 
but that we would become a people full of joy because we're living in the will of God. So my question to you is, have you truly decided to live for the rest of your life for the will of God and reject sin? God will preserve you in your trials. Now let's look at verses three through four where we're gonna see how we should behave during our suffering. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. For the time that is past is referring to our pre-conversion days. And Peter says, for the time that is past suffices. Peter is saying, enough is enough. We'd had enough time living in sin before Jesus. Enough is enough. And so the rest of our lives should be devoted for doing the will of God. And then Peter gives us this list, a list of what the Gentiles want to do. We've already mentioned this, but the word Gentile here isn't referring to the people group of Gentiles, but it's referring to this general reference for for unbelievers. And so Peter's list is a list of what unbelievers love to do. And just a quick glance at this list, we see that nothing has changed from Peter's time to ours. The list describes the sinful culture around us. This list describes our sinful past. And sadly, sometimes our sinful moments in the present. Peter mentions sensuality. This is where you go wherever the physical desires of your body lead you. And so if you find pleasure in food, it doesn't matter if you're hungry. It doesn't matter if it's healthy or not. You're going to eat whatever your body desires. If you have a desire for sexuality, you're going to find a way to be able to satisfy that desire. If you have a desire to be the center of attention, you'll make sure that your presence is known. You will satisfy that desire because the focus is on yourself and you'll do whatever it takes to satisfy your cravings. This is what sensuality is. Peter lists drunkenness and drinking parties where we take this good gift from God like wine and use it for something that that it was never meant to be used for. Drinking too much, drinking too often in order to numb the pains of life rather than seeking the Lord with your problems. These sinful practices are repeated over and over and over and become idols that our culture worships. And though maybe some of you have not been involved in some of these specific practices listed here, we were still sinners, disobedient to God and in need of forgiveness. And in fact, our selfish ambitions, which all of us have, are characteristics of self and thus sin. And Peter is saying here in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices. Peter is saying that we 
just need to agree that our past sinning was enough. It was enough. We have been born again, and the old is gone. However, we still struggle. We still struggle as we return to that old self. We're drawn to our old ways of thinking. We're drawn to our old ways of living because we still live in a fallen world. And we need to be realistic that these temptations listed here are still temptations that are all around us. And too many of us have lingered too long in these areas of sin. We easily forget that our past lives were enough. And sadly, many of us live our days unchanged by the gospel. As we give in to sin, we demonstrate that we think very little of the promises, of the delights, of the inheritance that await us in the future. Peter says to us, enough is enough. And the Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 13. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So a decided disciple that says it is better to suffer than to sin refuses to participate in the ungodly behavior of the culture around them. They refuse to fall back into their old ways and give in to these sinful desires. Since we have been born again, since we are exiles and strangers here in this world, we no longer participate in the sinful aspects of our culture. But Peter is not saying that we remove ourselves from the world. The church gets it wrong with that. We don't remove ourselves from the world. We remove ourselves from worldliness. And as we do this, the unbelieving world around us, around us responds with surprise and slander. Peter says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. When Christians refuse to give into the culture around them, those in the culture will not accept this. Unbelievers can't believe that we won't participate in these sinful practices because they consider them normal cultural practices. They're shocked that we don't join in on their good time. You've probably experienced this in some ways. Maybe with family members or co-workers, classmates at school. When we stand for what we believe and refuse to participate in sin, we are labeled as judgmental, homophobic. We're accused of hate speech. People will judge you not because you said or did anything that judge them, but simply because you won't embrace their sinful choices as your own. Our world demands and desires that we participate in its drinking parties. They want us to affirm their sinful extramarital affairs. 
And so why do they insult us for our refusal to participate? It's because they know that their indulgences are destructive. They know. But unlike Christians, they have no incentive or power to abandon them. And our refusal casts a reflection on their behavior. And so out of anger, anger and envy, they malign us. They spread false rumors, and they mock us. And when you experience this type of hostility, remember, it is better to suffer for righteousness' sake than to sin. Because our deceitful hearts will not want to cause issues with other people. We want to be liked by people. We don't want to feel misunderstood. And that's why we need to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ. Because we could be easily led by our emotions. And then eventually give in to sin, give in to the culture. Or we could respond to those who come against us with our own words. But instead we are to resist sin. Not return evil for evil. And desire and pray that God would bless and save those who are lost in sin. We are not to judge. We entrust ourselves, like Jesus, to him who judges justly. That leads us to our last section in verses 5 and 6, where we see the judgment after suffering. Peter writes, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The judgment of unbelievers towards us is not the last word. They will give an account, not to you, but to God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so you don't need to defend yourself. What your job is as a Christian is to continue loving that person. Continue to preach the gospel. Continue to serve them out of love. God does the judging. Their wild parties and sinful indulgences may seem exciting and fun for the moment. Their mockery of you, their mistreatment, all of this will one day be called to account. There will be a day when your faith and your suffering and your obedience will be vindicated by his justice. And there will be a day when the mocker will be defeated and judged forever. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this text tells us that you do not have all the time in the world that you think you do. You cannot afford delaying and getting serious about Jesus Christ because God is ready right now to judge the living and the dead. And no one knows the day or hour that he's coming back. 
And so the question is, when he does, will you be ready? The only reason that he's delayed in coming is because of his grace and mercy. That you would hear the gospel message that there is forgiveness for your sins in Jesus Christ and that you would believe and trust in him. Today is the day of salvation. Flee from the wrath to come and turn to Jesus. And lastly, let's look at verse 6, where Peter reminds believers of the hope of the gospel. Peter writes, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Unbelievers probably dismissed the Christian faith in Peter's day by pointing out the fact that believers died in the same way as unbelievers. The world looks at us as we declare the victory of Jesus, and as we say that he's on his throne and he's reigning, and they see Christians dying in the same way that they do. And in Peter's time, a little bit later on, the world saw Christians buried in shallow graves. The world saw Christians burned at the stake. And the world turns to believers and says, doesn't look like you're winning. Looks like you're losing. We need to be reminded that all of us will still face the results of the sin of Adam. That's what Peter is saying here. What did the sin of Adam bring into life? Physical death. And so all of us will physically die. But the hope of the gospel is this, that there is life on the other side. We do really believe in eternal life. We don't believe that this is all there is. And we know that those who had faith in Jesus Christ who were forgiven and saved, now live in the Spirit, like Peter says in this text. It's better to live for righteousness' sake than to suffer for sin. Those who believed and suffered unto death are now with God. And so either we will suffer in this age and find joy in the age to come, or we will find satisfaction in the present age which leads to eternal suffering in the age to come. And so to close up, in that moment when you're being mocked, in that moment when you're struggling with temptation, in that moment when you're misunderstood, in that moment when you've suffered in ways that you never thought you'd ever suffer, remember the gospel that Jesus Christ came to this world. He suffered. He shed his blood on the cross for your sin. He died and was buried, and yet he rose, conquering sin, death, and evil in order to give you eternal life. This is what Peter has been telling us over and over again that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus did all of this in order to secure eternal life 
for his people. So yes, you will suffer in this life, but you can say confidently that this is not all there is. Eternity is sure, it's true, it's real. And you will live beyond this life forever and ever and ever and ever. We have a living hope. Praise God. This is true. But now I have a couple questions for you. Are you thinking this way during the week? When the temptations and the suffering comes, are you thinking this way? Does your life look different to the world around you? Does your life look different from your past life? And are you arming yourself with the mindset that Christ had as he suffered in the flesh? Fear is the reason why we resist suffering. And from what we've heard this morning, in Christ there is nothing to fear. We are forgiven. God will protect us. God will vindicate us. And we will live with him forever. And so embrace suffering as your, part of your calling in this life. Embrace it. Resist sin. And seek to live for the will of God. It is better to suffer for righteousness' sake than to sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to truly embrace our calling to suffer for doing good. May we receive it with open arms, knowing that everything we bear for you in this life will be nothing in comparison with the glory that we will share with you in heaven. Make us a people who resist sin and live for your will. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.